Welcome to the Deptford Cinema Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Deptford Cinema Podcast. For this month's podcast, we have a special Black History Month podcast on the Candyman and comparing the old and the new versions. I'm Charlotte and with me are... Uh, I'm Tracy. I'm Neil. Great. So the new Candyman recently came out in cinemas and revisited and reimagined in many ways the original story. But uh, it was yeah reimagining of the classic Candyman made in 1992, which is seen as now a seminal piece of work and classic horror. So I wonder if you guys could share your feelings about the, the first film, maybe like how you felt about when you first first saw it. So Tracy? Oh, okay. Well, I've only just recently seen The Candyman, the 1992 version for the first time uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm not a horror fan, but I was intrigued by the new one, being a female director, a, a very young female director as well. Um, the, the original one, the opening I think caught me from the beginning just by the main title sequence, how it was filmed. It instantly gave you um, a sense of that there was going to be a lot in this film that they were going to be covering. And yes, there was obviously race, gentrification, um, class, everything, you know, everything was in there. Um, I remember uh, at the time they said it, there was lots of controversy around it. So I kind of avoided it anyway, not being a horror fan, but I think it's, um, yeah, quite scary. Um, but the theme I found really intriguing of, um, just the history of this Candyman, how he came into being, um, the use of, um, gentrification tied in with a horror film, which I never thought would be. So, I just found the whole thing quite um, kind of um, a layered subject, really, for a horror film. And I just never thought horror films were like that. That was my view of the first one. I uh, I love horror films. So I'm coming at this from a different angle to Tracy. Um, I saw Candyman probably way too young. I think went in about 90, when was it, 92. So uh, my friend and uh, got the, rented the video out. So I was far too young, under 18. They can't get me now. To watch that film and uh, I loved it uh, the first time I saw it and I think as a kid you love it because I loved sort of horror films and that so it kind of was in the early 90s the tail end of the sort of slasher movie boom where he had the likes of Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street and all those type of characters and those films they were kind of dying out a bit sort of pun and no pun intended there um, and they this came out sort of right at the back end of that and I think it was we thought it was going to be part of that, but I agree with Tracy. This is a much more, definitely a layered film. There's much more going on in it than some of those films. And ever since I've seen it then, it's kind of really, really grown on me and I've appreciated it for, for, for much more. It, it's sort of about so much, um, certainly from about the characters. The setting is obviously key and uh, all the sort of elements around it. So it's got some great direction to it. Um, it's kind of got... I love the score as well. That Philip Glass is one of the one of the best score to any horror film I've ever heard that he gave this film. And of course, Tony Todd was such such a presence in this film. And I mean that in every sense, because if you watch it back, he's not in it much per se, but he, he's such a presence in this film. He was like the kind of 
the kind of title character was a really interesting thing to do with him. And um, yeah, it was really interesting to sort of go back and watch it. And I think what was it I'd heard, having seen this film, that you should really watch the first one. And they both do, they both will complement each other. And I can say, we'll talk about it more, that they do. And I happened to watch the new, first one again, directly, I think two days after the cinema, I'd see this, this new version. And definitely even open up the new version to me and made me think, oh, okay, sort of different things what's going on in the sequel. So, yeah, the first one's a, a, an absolute uh, classic for me. And definitely a scary film, especially the five times in the mirror. I, I've yet to be anyone that could really watch this film and then proceed to do that. So we're not going to do that on this podcast. I know bad things will happen. <laughs> so um, uh, that's the big challenge for Candyman. <laughs> Take away. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that he um, Tony's not in it till quite a bit later on. It actually takes forty four minutes for the Candyman to turn up in the film. Um, I totally, I'm totally with you in terms of the the amazing score and the the amazing camera work as well. Um, with the aerial shot of Chicago um, in the beginning, it kind of really sets the scene. I I actually saw the films the wrong way round. Um, I because I went to see the um, uh, the the remake or the the Jordan Peele version, and um, then I watched the original version afterwards. Um, I'm coming to um, horror relatively late. I didn't really get into horror until uh, quite recently. Um, I don't really know why. I guess because one one thing that happened to me when I was young is that um, my two brothers would watch horror films and scare the crap out of me. And that stopped me watching horror films myself until I was quite a bit older. Uh, there's a lot of really fantastic elements um, uh, with the, um, the background story, kind of painting the Candyman as kind of like a, um, a Dracula-type figure. Um, so kind of like gothic in certain ways. And uh, definitely having a, a tragic backstory, being an artist or in, well, that's uh, going back to the very beginning of the the etymology of the character, but also the, the tragic backstory of the original character who was just like a harmless man who gave the kids sweets. Um, yeah, there's certainly a lot to unpack. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a lot. It's interesting you say about a character being the title character introduced. Let's call it as it is a 90 minute horror film. There's not in it at all. He literally doesn't turn up for halfway through the movie. Mm. And I, I'm struggling to think any film that does that, that has a title character, we're going to wait 45 minutes in. I was thinking about this. Probably the only other one I could think of was probably Alien. Because we don't get to the actual monster until about near an hour in, in a horror film. And that's really the only one I could think of that dared to do that, which is going to make what the about Jaws? wait for this. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Jaws was, yeah, but Jaws, the shark's in it, isn't it? It is there. The shark is there. Um, and well, I suppose it's the glimpse there. at the start. <laughs> well, yeah, you think it's there, the genius of Spielberg making you think you see what you've got, but it's under the water there. When you see the final shark as well, it's a bit. I mean, much as that's one of the greatest films of all time, but let's face it, the shark in some shots, mm, a bit rubbery. Not as bad as the sequels, but we'll give it that. But yeah, 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 it was daring for a horror film to do that. 
Um, I think that's what makes it so um, yeah. intriguing. As I said, I'm not a horror person. I've got to keep putting that in. I stopped watching horror films probably just as Candyman came out. But it the um, when they went first onto the, that estate or project um, in America, as they call it, I mean, the, the, the build-up to it, I think, yeah, he couldn't have come in any earlier, I don't think, because just by being there when she went up with her friend up to the lift, up to the empty flat, I always remember thinking, why would you go in there? So I think the build-up was necessary, and I don't think her colleague would have gone either. Her colleague would have stayed in the car. There's no <laughs> way in the 92 version. There's absolutely no way. you would. She would not have gone in that, those block of flats following her friend who was being very bold in that environment I just remember thinking no way so I think adding the candy man too early would have just been too much yeah I think his presence is there because he's kind of mm. talked about so much in the film I really like yeah. the the scene of many scenes they do where they you're kind of given his background very nicely where because he's kind of from the point of view of her she's kind of She's kind of doing the research on him, isn't she? She's kind of doing research on urban legends and, and stuff like that, which again was something new touched on in sort of horror films. And um, I love the dinner type party scene where he actually explains the history of Candyman and he uses like nice, he slows down the edit. He does nice little, very slow zoom in on her face as the guy's telling her the story. And then you, they fade in like sound effects of what, what was actually happening from the story he's telling about Handy Candyman, like the legend of what happened to him. Um, how that's done is a really like edge of the seat moment. And it doesn't need it doesn't need any visuals for that. And it's kind of like all done for sound and just some nice sort of filmmaking of that. So you're like hooked. And um, also it just uh, plays on the mind because yeah. with the story of Candyman, it, it's so horrific. Um that you know, you just keep thinking. I actually, do we want to see this person? What was come your scariest bit? <laughs> what was the scariest bit for you, Tracy? Oh, um, well, to me, the scary bit was going in the room before even finding out about the Candyman, going into that empty flat, and her going through. That I was already petrified at that point. So, uh, some of it I had to cover my eyes with because, um, yeah. It's just too horrible. But I think they made the Candyman just look just so horrific. I think in, well, without talking too much about the modern one yet, the original one, I just found him just too much. But I think he had to be so horrific from where he's come from. He's kind of, it's interesting how he's kind of, he kind of appears, but he has the hook hand and that's kind of done in that way when he first sees her in that, car park or you see him in mm. that shot and he starts walking towards her and by the way Tony Todd has one of the best voices in any film um, you could hear him talk all, all, all night he's got such a great voice and he definitely used that in this film but that adds a layer but then that scene where he's there he's kind of got because I was, I was reading about this that he's kind of he, you find out that he's he, the artist that he was he kind of come did he come from wealth or something because he's wearing like this kind of very long sort of stylish coat with his shoes and that. So he's kind of taking on that form. So it's it's really interesting. He's kind of all gentlemanly. And then they use it where he's just got the hook for the hand and ugh, then it just goes on from there. I presumed he was like a freed man from when, yeah. back in the day. So he automatically 
started to gentrify himself being an artist probably um that's probably why i think and then that says a lot about gentrification as well i think at the time there was some hesitancy to do it to put um the villain as kind of a, a black actor as the villain obviously it fits the story but there was some hesitancy about that guy and you know do we want this kind of represented on the screen but i think bernard rose who adapted the screenplay and directed it he was very much like he got it. He was like, no, no, because I'm telling you, the, the horror audiences they they kind of empathise or love the boogeyman. They all these bit horror villains. If you go, if you're going fancy dress on Halloween, which you probably are, now we're uh, <laughs> listening to this podcast. They're all dressed as the villains. They're not dressed as the victims. So they kind of have this kind of fan thing around them, and they're kind of true. Like Candyman is this. He's got some real personality to him, and you're like because you, you, he's wrong. You're kind of on his side. Then you realise some of the deeds he does in this film, oh my word, you're kind of horrified by them. Yeah, I mean, the B scenario is just, again, it's just so horrific by how he was, after his hand was cut and then they covered him in honey and then the bees. Everything about it is just so horrific. Mm. Um, And I think, I mean, I'm not sure, because I know it's based on the short story Forbidden, which I don't, I'm not familiar with, but I'm intrigued why they made it um, like this, because the actual candy, everything about the candy man is so hor- horrifying and reflective of kind of American history. I believe they, um, what what their history is, and with my sort of nerdy film knowledge here, is that um, Clyde Barker, who made Hellraiser, um, which is another classic horror film, um, he, Bernard Rose sort of approached him to adapt the book and the book, I understand, listeners may have read it, and obviously, well, me, I understand it's set in Liverpool. Yeah, and it's that's about right. that sort of urban, it's more about the urban myth thing, more about like, um, and it is about poverty, like someone going on to an estate, it's in a mm-hmm. state in Liverpool where this takes place. But I think what happened was, and it's a curious thing, that when they made Hellraiser, they did one thing, and I always look back at Hellraiser, and I'm like, oh, to rewatch, it's got an peculiar thing, and when you watch it, they, they kind of dubbed a lot of the actors in American. I didn't realise this until a recent rewatch. And the reason they did that was they wanted to sell it into an American market, the producers. Apparently, Clive Barker hated that. It was one of the one things he hated they did with the film. And in a curious thing with Bernard Rose, apparently he said, you, you need to take this to America because they're going to do this again. So they threw their hands in the air thought, you know what, we'll set it in America. And then... They went over there, the production, they convinced the production company, and then Bernard Rose was apparently, I don't know if he'd even been to America, but they went to do this and they, they were adapting the script. So where, where do you want to set this in America? And he, he arbitrarily picked the city of Chicago. It was something like he picked it, just think of the name of a city in America. Oh, I've heard of Chicago. And then he <laughs> went there, and then they said, he just sort of laid it out to the sort of adapting the screenplay again to wherever the producers in America were doing, and then... They came back to him saying, oh, you need to shoot this around Cabrini Green, which is a real place, a real estate. But then they went there and you realise that, this is what you're picking up on, Tracy, that setting it there, they kind of found that setting. It was mm. very much, obviously, projects, which is what they were called at the time, uh, a high black population there. And they realised America has that, uh, of course, it's in a lot of countries, but America itself has that huge divide between, is it the, the maybe a cliche, but they're not the poor black neighborhoods 
and the affluent white ones. And that's what County Man touches on as well. And they kind of really fleshed that out when they were making the film. And I think when Tony Todd got involved, he especially wanted to tell that story totally thinking, you know, we need this to be about black history and about it all touches on like where where that America is in that time. This The, the whole story, the ingredients were there. It is quite fascinating how they changed it. But yeah, um, I mean, it's how they it's, accidentally almost did it. Yeah, I think that I think, yeah, obviously going to where they found and the projects where they ended up. Yeah, I think it's um, it would have been weird if they hadn't touched on the race issue in America no. and the class issues and gentrification, um, because that's really when it was just at its where everything was changing. I think by that point time Harlem had changed Brooklyn was changing so I think um yeah they had to and I suppose bringing in the concept of Candyman as um he, he was a slave wasn't he was he a, no a freed slave an artist I believe so yeah yeah so that's very that's very prevalent in America they can't hide that fact um so that would always come in and um I just think, yeah, combining the two is just such a strong subject. And I think there's been lots of writers that have written about it, like Octavia E. Butler. She's has written a story about going back in time to slavery, back and forth. So that connection between the two is very strong in African-American literature. So, um, yeah, I think it was a probably a brave move, obviously, you know, at the time that both writer and the um, director, both white Europeans, that probably, I think, was probably um, a cause of concern at the time. And I think I know, as I said, I didn't see it at the time, but I remember there were um, discussions about the portrayal of the African-American at the time by the director and obviously the writer of the film. It's kind of like an interesting thing about the film as well, in that it's got it's told well, not kind of, but it, it's, it's got the Virginia Madsen like hairlid. I can't think of it, and she is kind of told from her point of view. So it's like a white person going in to sort of give you this access to this world has always been something which is kind of caused maybe some controversy about the film or people read it. Going, this is just an interpretation of the story, but. Mm. It's kind of interesting because it's like, I think Candyman, and we're touching it with the sequel as well, which I think doubles down on this, is that it's kind of all about an interpretation of the story. Like it's about what what's actually happening in these places. And it's like someone will tell a story from this angle and then some people there will tell a story from another angle kind of thing. It's, I think as well yeah. at that time, there's no way the lead character would have been anything other than who they chose. Um, and her friend who kind of got killed straight away, who, as, as I said, I that bit really stuck in my head following into the projects as um, a black woman. I don't think she would have gone in as a secondary person very mm. boldly into the projects like that with her friend. I think she would have stayed back. There's those little things that, I kind of picked up in the film that was quite important, I think, at the time that, again, talk, when we talk about the new one, we can see how it has um, shown change between yeah. the, the last, however, 25 years, is it? Or 30 years, is it? 
that it was well, made. Yeah. That, yeah, well, yeah well, 29 years, yeah. I think as well that there's something about it in the I'm a bit cynical on it, slightly. Much as I don't love this film. Um, I'm tightly cynical that they maybe repositioned it because Silence of the Lambs was a year before, and that was such a huge, like, pop culture movie. Hmm. But it was very, very strong leaning on uh, one female figure, an investigator, being led or influenced by a very charismatic kind of psychopath murderer. <laughs> I, I kind of draw these comparisons between the film and I'm convinced the producers at the time when they were making it obviously a year later, I can't believe they weren't going because there's Hollywood studios always chase a buck going from that it influenced so many films, Science of Lambs, that I think they maybe repositioned it to go, you know what, maybe we need the story this way because that worked. That works as ingredients of that successful film. So I'm a touch cynical that maybe they did alter it in a certain way. There are interesting parallels. And in that time, that influenced the film perhaps over what it should have been. I, I still think it's quite um, uh, quite different for that era. I think The Candyman as a film, how it looks, as, um, there definitely feels something quite different. Like a, there's a real turning point in cinema with the way how it was filmed for me. Um, well, they definitely used some amazing techniques Um not just around the camera, but, and also obviously the sound design. Um, I mean, I think one thing that really works well for the film is the fact that they did shoot a lot of it on location and the feel of the area really kind of set the scene for the actors and made it easy for them to kind of get into their roles. In a way, it's like the location acts as um, a character in itself, much like in Scorsese, Scorsese films. Um, you get New York as a character in itself. And I think that that's a huge element um, of why the film is so different. And I, I, I doubt that they'd be showing any uh, location like that so quite up close and, you know, as it is um, in any other films at the time. Yeah, it felt like they literally walked onto a project and said, hey, let's start filming here. It was um, very authentic, I felt. I think I heard the production, they were very much, it's kind of the tricks of the trade. They There's certain shots that Cabrini Green's real, and it was obviously a very, very infamous project. And that to shoot there, I believe, they did a lot of external shots. And it's interesting, I think, the shot where they go in, where they first arrive there and they go in up the stairs is all external. But if you watch it back, it's only a, they use a tracking shot to, to take them through to the staircase. And I think they the production crew, there's only about four or five shots where they get out of a car, like the next sequence, and then they go into the building. And I think it was right. a result of, if we're going to shoot this, we need to shoot and leave, because I don't think it was the place to be, uh, especially shooting a film. Um, they were going to attract some sort of attention. So I think they were very nervous shooting it on location. But it does work. And then sort of the interiors and stuff are obviously in the studios where they can they can control that better. But, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting to sort of see that sort of cut up. But, yeah, the environment's fantastic. And then gentrification. And then it has all these wide shots of Chicago. And I take it away from it, like, especially sort of American past as well. It's kind of, it is very strong looking back at it because it has the, the bees play a big part. And then there's certain mm. shots where bees are flying over the city and they have all this weird kind of like, they, they superimpose them and such. And I'll take that from that, that it's like, like gentrification, like they've built over this, like America's yeah. has a past 
doesn't want to face it and it's kind of carpeted over it with something else to try and forget it. And Candyman himself is almost like a personification of that reawakening and going, no, this happened and everyone needs to look here and see what see what the legacy of that is. It's like almost like he personifies history itself um, to return and, you know, wreak vengeance. And also confront <laughs> confront the past. Yeah. Yes. And it's also like she... Like she's interesting, actually, because sort of coming on to the, the later one, it's like it repeats the story of the first one. They have someone... So in this, the first one, we're told the story of Candyman, the original one that we know of before we get to the, the sequel. And then in the start of the new one, they tell you the story of Helen, who <laughs> the events of the first film. But looking back at it, they kind of retell it slightly differently. So there is a point of view where in the first film, you think, oh, Candyman's doing the murders and sort of framing her. But then there is this point of view to read it going, well, how do you know she didn't do the murders. Is Candyman in her head? Mm. What's going on? It's kind of another layer of this great film where you read it going, is this all in her head? Is this <laughs> happening? Has she lost the plot getting involved here? I don't know. And um, I think that's another layer of it that kind of adds to the sort of fascination of the film and makes it such a brilliant bit of storytelling. Yeah, I think, yeah, that did come across very strong in the first one, I think, because you do question her state of mind. It's, um, yeah, because, yeah, in so many um, of the scenes with her, it's there's no way you think that she would have got away with saying it's the Candyman and her, I think, yeah, she in theory should have been caught earlier and kept, but obviously people would have got murdered. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> she, <laughs> every police that took her in, she would have killed them. So, yeah. That film over. It's interesting how they... <laughs> They, the police turn on her as well. It's kind of, I'm watching it back. It's kind of, there's interesting little parallels in there. Um, as I watched it recently, you know, obviously the last 18 months to two years and everything we've been through, there's things like, there's words used in it like lockdown. Like there's a murder committed there and then they lock down Cabrini Green. I thought that yeah. was interesting. That as an interesting parallel. That struck a chord with me a little bit about, mm, and about how authorities exercise, you know, their power and how the police turn on her as well. Because the detectives in one scene thinking, oh, what are you doing in Caprini Green? He's like feeling sorry for this white woman that might have gone astray again. You don't want to walk in that neighbourhood. And then later on, he walks in the room and she thinks, oh, here's my saviour. He's going to get me out of this predicament. And he does not believe her and does not want to know. And he's very much like, no, what's, what's you know, you're, you've committed something quite, quite bad here. <laughs> <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> yeah, very, very bad. When you see, go and watch this film and oh dear. I think the scene that stuck out for me is in the the doctor's walk, the doctor's office, where she's they sort of cycle. He's kind of evaluating her, and then again, oh, will they ever learn? They dare her to say the name in the mirror, and then ooh, <laughs> that is quite a grim scene. Love it. Yeah. That is, <laughs> Love I think I'd close my eyes at that point. <laughs> yeah. It's beautifully done because it leaves you that one second more which ticks you thinking, oh. oh, nothing's happened. Oh! And then, yeah, then it does happen. <laughs> Everyone's not seen the film, go see it. Oh, you have been warned. <laughs> it's on death. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so, this yeah. might be a good point then to move on to the new film. Um, you mentioned about the retelling of. Um, 
the original story, but this time it was obviously via animation, which I felt was used really effectively. Um, and by doing that, it kind of puts you in mind of like a, it's kind of like a child's fairy tale, isn't it? Albeit like a grim fairy tale. And it kind of positions it as if, um, as if it's a complete fiction from the beginning, which, as you said, it makes you wonder, oh, yeah, well, we're starting again and we're wondering if it's, if it's true, whether they're going to completely flip the film around and have it, you know, something completely different. Yeah, and then it goes on from there. I mean, what, what, what did you guys think about the use of animation um, in the storytelling in the second film? Um, I really loved that element of it. I think that was um, quite a strong part of it for me because at the... I mean, I'm jumping right to the very end with the titles, the credits going up and that whole animation. And I just felt, actually, they can just use that as an animated version of the Candyman because it just does it. And also they used it at the beginning when he was young and doing um, a shadow puppet scene in his bedroom for the artist that he becomes. So it is so well connected from the you know, him as an artist, Anthony as an artist, and at the end, but I think the animation at the end is definitely a standalone because you just sit and watch the whole thing all over again (laughs) through animation at the end. But I think it was a really, um, yeah, I think that worked really well because it was a very cinematic film and very artistic as well. And I think, yeah, that really added to it for me. Uh, Yeah, totally. I was, I was, over the the closing credits, everyone... I think closing credits are warped now. Everyone's on the Marvel effect. There's something coming in the closing credits, so I think a lot of people hang about. I swear that's a thing. I'm guilty of it. I think everyone will find you're guilty of it now. They've warped that. So you don't now have to stay till the end of the credits. But then that, the credits were, yeah, I was listening to go, whoa, what is this? And then from what I understand is the, yeah, there's a retelling of Candyman, but the credits represent real events, real-life events that obviously the theme of this film big themes of this film about everything from uh, violence in black society, police violence and um, racism and everything. And there's there's incidents in that. And I remember a friend of a friend saw this movie and obviously saw it from a different prison of, of what I saw it. And they were actually recognising some of the elements because they were quite infamous stories to certain people. And they were like, oh, that's quite a famous or infamous incident in in history about about these occurrences. And they actually portrayed them. So it was really clever to do that. Mm. And again, ben, it's, again, it's about, it's another form of storytelling, isn't it? Like like we're saying, yeah. like the first one is just about, a lot of it, because the Candyman's hardly in it, we're hearing the stories of him. And now this is just another version of that. It's another version of storytelling and interpretation of a story. Mm. It's almost in a way, it's how many times can you tell this without change happening? Yeah. That's how it felt for me. Because it's all these different renditions in different ways throughout the film. But it's like, how many times do you need to hear it? That came across very strong for me. I think that with the different, we don't spoil the territory here, but with the different <laughs> the different candy men to use the thing about how, they, yeah, you realise, oh, wait, it's not just him it's happened to. Was he the original one or is he just, mm. this? you're right, Tracy, it's like, it, that's just, that's happened again. So this mm. keeps happening. 
Because on one um, review I listened to, somebody said, uh, one of the guys was saying it's quite um, a didactic narrative through the whole film, how they're kind of pushing the story. But I think that was a whole reason for it. When they are trying to retell in different formats, in different ways throughout the new Candyman, something that's reoccurring, that's not being addressed, and we're doing it through this horror genre, which um, for me was, as I said, new, having, thinking horror was so in-depth <laughs> and challenging in this way, while covering my eyes at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was, that. and then it's just all about the certain bits where, certainly where it starts, and you find out the Candyman, the majority of the Candyman is there, is the, I, I can't remember the character's name, but he, he has the image of Candyman. He has the long coat and he has a hook for a hand. And then they kind of they're kind of saying that it's again, it's about that representation, like, oh, this guy must be, you know, look out, here comes the candy man. And then you realise as his backstory is unveiled, this guy was harmless. He was mm. he'd like to give he's the candy man because he likes to give sweets <laughs> to children. He's the opposite of a threat. This guy was like the local neighborhood friendly guy. And then the tragedy happens, what happens to him, and then is that story of vengeance kicks in again. And it's kind of about telling you that story, that side of influence too, um, influence on the story. And then it can't be most on anyone that the lead character, Anthony, hello, he's an artist. So again, <laughs> yeah, he's kind of signposting like, like you say, Tracy, this is going to happen again, because <laughs> it's kind of telling you that, that mm. here we go, but it doesn't um, Yeah, it's a good way of repeating the, the, the story or what they are, trying to retell. Yeah. Yeah. Like the candy man scratching. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't realise you could hear that. Mm. <laughs> I was just <laughs> trying to get something off my screen. The the, uh, the repeated narrative really does really does hammer home the idea of history repeating itself. Um and if uh, if an issue isn't addressed it will just continue to to haunt us as society and to come back in in different forms um so it's really interesting the and also mess with people's minds yeah. do you know what i mean it's messing with people's minds it's um it's it's like a virus it's doing it's you know nothing is going to be resolved and i think um the i think nina da costa had her work cut out for this but i think having um Jordan Peele, as co-writer and producer, there for her, um, not for her, but as uh, with his background, I think um, it was a really good combination. Well, he wrote a screenplay about, which was a very clever horror film, about sort of the black experience in America, and he won the Oscar. So it was Get Out. Mm. So he's got that kind of, he has yeah. got that clout and that sort of, Wherewithal but to tell that he, story. But he's stayed away from the limelight. It's yeah. Nina DaCosta who's the director, co-writer, and yes, you know, his name is there and he must have been a great mentor in many ways, but it's very much, I feel, her, because I'm sure he would have done it a bit differently. And I think just by the... There's elements that I think, oh, well, this must have been his influence, like the beginning bit of the reflection of the mirror when Candyman by, is it the Sammy Davis Jr. version of the Candyman at the beginning to make you all very nervous 
um, with that jolly yeah. tune, with the reflect, everything was reflect mirrored at the beginning before it goes into the view of the city from aerial view. And that was quite unnerving. And I thought, oh, that's a very Jordan Peele kind of thing. But there was elements in it that I thought, oh, yeah, that's very him. But I think as a piece, she has really made her mark, I think, um, as a young director being given, you know, this kind of opportunity. I think as well, the, 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 you know, we talk about mirrors, and yes, it was obviously the, maybe a bit heavy-handed, but I, I, I liked it about how mirrors feature a hell of a lot more in mm. this film. But it's kind of like this, it's been said, this follow-up sequel, remake, whatever you want to call it, is kind of the mirror image. Because she throws in little parallels like that, and I, know, I think we've mm. all noticed the opening titles. Yeah. Whereas the opening titles, the first one, we're looking down on the city, and the mm. opening titles of the this new one, the camera's up looking into the mm. skies and the skyscrapers of the city. Mm. And again, if you watch it back to back, I never spoke that to watch it back to back again. Oh, like, and there's other yeah. things that happen that kind of are that flipped over reflection. It kind of, that's how they play with your expectations of the film. That I thought was really, uh, really clever. And it, it's yeah. kind of, it's a rare, is it a sequel? I mean, this is a, something that's debated. It's that, not a sequel. Yeah, but they've called it Candyman. It's, so is it a remake? Which is, is weird. It? It's... <laughs> It's a different thing because it's it is a continuation. I wouldn't even say it's Candyman two. It's mm. almost um, I'm not even sure what the right word is to describe it. Really, it's um, I call it it's just uh, a, it's a series, <laughs> the Candyman series. It's you know book two, Candyman book two. <laughs> they kind of well, there was a Candyman two and three uh, in the nineties, um, and Tony Todd's in them. I think, but oh. I, I haven't seen them, and my friends have seen them, and I think from their feedback, I won't be rushing. Are they locked in them. the vault? Yeah, that they're, nobody they're needs kind of, to see. I think yeah. the second one was had things like Bella Rose's. I think Bella Rose made the second one. I'm not sure, but he certainly had their influence. But I think let's say for most sequels around that time, the the quality uh, slid uh, as the films went yeah. on. So nothing as strong as the first one. So it's interesting how they kind of wiping those sequels out and calling this candy. Yeah. I, I think it definitely isn't, yeah, as I said, it's not a sequel. It is a, as I said, it, it's a continuation, but not a sequel, I don't think. Yeah. If that makes sense. I'm not even sure if that does, but because Anthony's the baby. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, grow, he's grown up and all of all of that. There's just, it's just so many layers and so many um, concepts that they wanted to get in that, I mean, how they did it in, I think it was filmed over 32 days or something, something ridiculous. And I think all that, those layers of things, I don't know how they, I think they did it quite successfully, considering wow. the subjects are big, the subjects are complicated. They, you know, you can write a thesis on this because there's so much in it. It's kind of the, the thing about the, the flip side of it, it is... There's so many things going on, and like the commentary about gentrification. Mm. But it's almost like what's interesting about it is I took it, it's, the film's almost a comment on itself. And we're talking about like the type of is this a sequel? It's like there's been said that Hollywood gentrifying their movie franchises. You know, we're getting all sorts. We're getting Halloween, the new one. Now we've got Candyman, oh, okay. the new one. And then right, in right. recent years, you're getting this. There's a new screen coming out, the fifth screen film, and they're just calling it Screen. There's um, nothing. So, well, a friend of mine said this to me. He said, "What is with this? Why are they just calling them the same as the first one?" 
But it's also suppose... this thing about Hollywood gentrifying yeah. their own movies. And this film's but... about gentrification. So yeah. what, what does that say? But I think they're probably addressing how society's changing. And they want to yeah. be part of that. They've got so much more competition now with all the streaming platforms that are all over the world. And people are interested in stories all over the world, whereas before they weren't interested, apparently, in other mm. stories that were not Western. So I think they have to address these issues. And I think in this current Candyman, with Anthony and uh, Brianna, they were very um, bijou, sort of um, gentrified couple. Yeah who are African-American. So there was another element to discuss, you know, them moving into the, the, that area, being part of it. He's an artist. She's going up the ladder in her career in the art world. But then again, it says a lot about the art world with the critic, how she was, what she wanted from the artist, only became interested um, with the murder around his piece of work. It's, um, yeah, there's just so many things in it. And I think, if they didn't kind of get on to what's happening, even though they are would always be behind, they I think, yeah, they have to change. They've got to um just get with the programme a bit. And yeah, and it's it, it kind of is about the whole like society maybe a view of it where like you say, the couple, the lead characters themselves are gentrified themselves and they're quite yeah. a lot. And the film itself, like we say, I think it flips it. The film is a majority black cast. And the white characters in it, let's face it, they're not very nice. So it's kind of like the point of view from another side of a set of characters of someone else. It's flipped the first one, whereas we're with Helen and we're seeing this world. It's kind of how the world maybe sees people like that. But also with these two, they're kind of gentrified, but it's kind of like the tale of Candyman. Candyman was a talented, you know, we think, like we said, he's kind of like comes from maybe wealth or something. So mm. but that doesn't help him. And for them, but, the but that's, the, that's not going to yeah, that's not going to protect them. With being gentrified, however gentrified, however yeah. uh, free you are, you, you're only mm. free to a certain point. Whether you've got the gentrification and living a lovely flat and a job, it's only to so far, and then things become very ugly very quickly. As it does in this. <laughs> and it certainly does. Oh dear. What was your favourite scene from this one? Uh who's that aimed at? Oh, both. Sorry, Tracy. Charlotte, you're gonna say something. Um, I was just gonna say that um another thing that's uh focused on quite a lot in the, the second version is how the media does glamorize violence. Uh the way that, you know, everyone, as you said, Tracy, becomes really interested in his work once um bad things start happening and um it's saying that that's kind of been magnified more and more over time especially in the US isn't it with all these uh true crime mm. podcasts and tv series yeah um that does it does have a huge commentary on that as well so one of the many many layers of the film um yeah focusing on uh, yeah because he suddenly he can't just be a artist doing his work oh it's oh now it's got it's been tinged that's what we want yeah that's who you are yeah he can't just be a just a happy you know painting his nice pictures no once it's tinged and then it becomes like oh now you're real kind of mm. thing yeah absolutely he kind of like plays with fire a little bit i mean the story of the film he's kind of like he, he kind of is drawing on Candyman 
and it's kind of like again like the interpretation of the story so he's drawing on that to put in his art but then but also his ego because he's yeah. an artist his ego is <laughs> very prominent it's you know it has to be kind of handed to all the time so it's all it's all of those things that are tied up with him as a person him as an artist him as a gentrified African-American. Mm. It's so many things tied up that, um, it's a, you know, it's not a common character that's seen. No. So I don't even think it's necessarily flipping the characters. It's that that's a very normal state for some people, for lots of people, but it's not normally shown. So that's what makes it even more mm-hmm. um, intriguing for an audience. Yeah, he's a very complex yeah. character for a, a slasher horror, really. Yeah, that's what um, I think. That's what drew me to it because I thought, oh, it's going to be quite different to a horror. As I said, I haven't got a great catalogue of horror films, but it definitely, yeah, was because there's so much to think about in well, that film. Well, like Candyman himself, he's kind of the character's like shaped by. The violent events. I think, like the likes of, like I said, Freddy Krueger. He was bad to begin with, then comes back in his dreams to sort of get you. <laughs> but he's bad to begin with. Whereas, yeah, this Candyman, he's kind of, he's not. He, he's he's innocent. Uh, what happens to him? But then he's he's bad. He's just an and then he's just going to wrought all this violence on people and the perception of the world did this to him. I'm going to give this back to the world now. Mm. And then, yeah, like that. So he he he's like. But Anthony in this is kind of becoming. I liked the added layer, and I found this out that um, it's got some great makeup effects. I'm big up into body horror as well, and I did read that uh, Nida Costa was a big fan of David Cronenberg's The Fly. Oh, that, and that makes sense. That yeah. she really added that body horror layer, like he gets stung with the bee, and then yeah, ooh, every time we see his arm, it's not looking good. And then I loved all that. I was like, oh, my that's eyes. a great thing. It was like, oh, and, and it got my really key. But that was another thing. It was like he was going through physical change. Like it's mm. like not just the effects of his of everything he's seen around him. Something is physically changing him. And it's not just outlook, but his physical appearance and what's gonna to happen to him. Like the eyes arm was rotting yeah. away. It was like I think with this one, the horror, I was able to cope better with this one than the last one. And I don't know if it's because there was you, you were just trying to make sure you weren't missing anything in the story. Um, and also, obviously, violence, you don't really like that in films, but it was done in a different way where you didn't always necessarily see Candyman. It was just that the, the cut happened and then they were, you know, the trail of blood and all of that. Yeah, I think in the, the scene with the two... The in the gallery. ...and the girlfriend, isn't it? Or yeah. Girlfriend. And yeah, he's like, oh, he's in the yeah. he's in the mirror. Yeah. He doesn't you don't see him next to them, but yeah, you see. The, yeah, you don't see and then, then the he mirror. moves away, and that the, the art critic, you think, oh, she's okay, and then in the distance, and it's like, oh gosh, she's not okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think this is from watching a lot of horror films. I think this is sort of fifteen certificate, and I think the the BBFC were in a very good mood that day. This is the bloodiest fifteen certificate mm-hmm. I can remember. <laughs> So it certainly has. Yeah, but everything's point. 15 now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> they hate the dreaded 18. There's a couple of articles recently, 18. But mm. yeah, this one obviously would have wanted to reach as big as audience as possible. So I have to rein it in slightly. Mm. Um, I love the 
another death scene I love. And it, it's kind of what you're saying about the, the violence in the film. The look of the violence is the bit where the the the, the, the female critic gets gets killed in her apartment. And she does it where again we don't see your right We don't see the Candyman. No, you see her body. There's a great camera shot where it's almost like you only notice it when you're looking at it for a few seconds mm. of the shot where mm. she's almost being gutted by a window, and then mm. but it's panning out to show all the the different apartments in this gentrified mm. block. It's like a statement in itself of, oh, this is happening here, and mm. oof, that was. But I think also what? it's quite important that they didn't show him killing. Yeah. Because that's quite, you know, uh, yeah, that's what he does and that's what these men do. It's, I think, removing him like that, but just seeing him in the mirror, knowing that he's being called, but not seeing him do it, I think was really important. Even though it was horrific, it was important not to see him. It carries the threat, doesn't it? I think mm. that's like we, we keep seeing glimp- more and more glimpses of, Whatever candy manufacturer is appearing to Anthony, so he kind of said, "Did I just see that?" Is all that with the audience? They throw yeah. little camera shots and edits mm-hmm. and stings of music. Like, wait, did I just see that? They oh no, and the threat is definitely presented. Mm. Yeah, in that way. So I don't know if I had going back to your question about a best scene. I don't know if there was a best scene. I think more the character development. I liked um, Brianna's brother, the English actor. He was in Misfits. And he, I, I just liked how they m- made um, their family just a very normal contemporary family dynamics. And I, th- those elements of it, I really enjoyed as opposed to <laughs> the horrific elements, the stories, the complexities and trying to think, oh, did I miss that? Did I miss that? That's what I really liked about it. It was something that you think about way after and you read about as opposed to, oh, that was horrific and come out. Yeah, and he's also very, he, he's kind of a, he's well done because I think he, there's a clever scene where he talks her out of doing the mirror five mm. times. And I think you, you as an audience going, <laughs> you need to listen to this guy. <laughs> so, he's talking my language. I would go nowhere near that. <laughs> what about you, Neil? Is there a favourite scene of yours? Um... I'm trying to think of one. I really, I kind of, it was obvious, but it really unnerved me. And it was really one of those scenes that I saw, I wonder how they shoot these move, these scenes. So I mean, the, 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 the elevator scene, where he's like in a, a mirrored box, essentially. It's a real, just, it kind of, you realise what's happening. And then they, they appear in the mirror, because she's kind of, no, of course, set it up for you, that mirrors obviously play a big part in this, like in the first one. And then it kind of, it was really unnerving in that scene because, again, you know something's going to happen. And then I think there's a few jump scares where the lights keep, he gets stuck in the lift, the lights are going on and off. And then, like we said, but he gets to the bottom and, like, nothing's really happened. People are, like, wondering what he's mm. doing. They're getting out of the lift. That was, that was, yeah, that really unnerved me. That's it. It's full of Yeah, time. I think going back to that whole psychosis thing, how the past can mess with your head. Like at the ending, we get different candy. Like we say, it's kind of different iterations of it, and how it's like, yeah, but what, what looking at the past and sort of how we interpret it. And again, like you say, Tracy, it's not learning from the past as well. It's like these, these candy mm-hmm. man's almost the personification, the warning that this is happening and it will happen mm-hmm. again. Someone needs to listen. Mm-hmm. And it affects everyone, it affects people. 
obviously not hopefully not like the candy man i'm not going to call candy man in the mirror i'm not <laughs> no, no no apparently when they first came up with the script it's based on the urban myth it was more about i think my brother in that book had urban myths and i think it's bloody mary where you're not supposed to say it into the mirror but they wrote the rule down that it was 13 times. And I think when they started to do rehearsals, I think they were getting bored. Like, oh, we got to cut it down for 13. People are going, that's going to take a full-on 60 seconds to deliver it 13 yeah. times. It's not going to work for a 90-minute movie. So then they cut it down to five. That's literally what they did. They were like, we'll do it five. Let's just do it then. Yeah, that's just enough. Yeah, Not whatever. free, but just, just to push it a little bit, yeah. What did you make of the scene in the school? That was quite an interesting... That was horrible. Yeah. But it was, I, I wasn't quite sure why that was there. I wasn't sure if they heard about what was happening and they were like, hey, let's see if this really happens. And the young girl who obviously is not part of the group goes into the cubicle and then that horrors of horrors happen. But I wasn't sure what that bit was. I didn't understand that part. Because I, think- I thought, is that just for, you know, you know, just to show how extensive the killing is it struck me that that was what they were trying to do it was interesting um trailers are terrible these days i did catch the trailer for this film before so there's certain you can become elements of trailers i had to spoiler films it does do it if you can avoid the trailer for the new Candyman, do because i think it'll be refreshed but that scene's the the first scene is in the trailer that i saw and it kind of it felt like a sort of opening scene to the film when you see it out of context mm. like this is starting again but when the movie yeah you're not we're an hour and 15 in when that movie mm. when that scene occurs so it's almost it's almost like they're playing with those expectations of in any other horror film we started this in their first act right the warning yeah. this is happening and then it kind of comes back but i guess again it's because it's the girl in the gallery earlier in the movie is the one that takes the picture of his art and then this is tiny little subplot where we follow her mm. to the school and again the reimagining of this it's like someone thinking oh this is just a this is just a joke yeah like, and they take it and don't take it seriously and they they kind of find out the hard way and again the way the violence is presented is is pretty good because again the one stuck in the cubicle and you see yeah, it. just that little mirror is yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. And then the bee lands on it. So it's obviously mm. like Candyman's like representative of, of mm. that. And, and by the way, I didn't mention that about the first one. What blows me away about the first one is that those bees, how they did those shot with the bees, especially when Tony Dodd's got it in his mouth, mm. was just mind blowing. <laughs> All CGI. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I read that they got stung a little bit. And I'm like, well, no, but. What a performance to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Can you just stick these bees in your mouth? Yeah, I'll give it a go. Like, what? Like, what? Just check if that's on my insurance policy. Yeah. yeah. Apparently he had script? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently he had it written into his contract that for every sting he received, he would get paid a thousand dollars and got stung twenty three really? times during the course of the film. <gasps> yeah. Really? Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> Everyone got stung at least once. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love those backstories. Rich man. We're going to run out of budget, Tony. 
They'll get stung yeah. again. We're done with the bee shot. They get cheeky. <laughs> They're voluntary stings now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you're looking for the bees. Why can they watch after three? <laughs> oh, also apparently Virginia Madsen um, was allergic to bees. But apparently when they did no. the test, she was far more allergic to wasps. Um, oh right, okay. And they they promised to always have a um, a medic on set in case she had any allergic reactions. Oh wow, wow. that's <laughs> yeah, that is pretty dangerous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I always find it like with the interesting thing about just looking back at some of the things I read about the film, the, the timing of this film, because what I think we forget. Is this film was delayed. This film was delayed yeah. from summer 2020. So it's a year yes. late. So it was in the can, uh, so to speak. Film speak, I can tell that. But it, it was finished around the end of 2019. I think it was in the edit yeah. bring it. But then George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, that all happened the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I find it odd and, and kind of, whoa. Like, it's kind of prescient how this film is because it was... This film was made with before all that was in really certainly put in the major limelight that ate up so many headlines last year. I think it was good. I think um, it was very good that it was um, delayed uh, as mm. a film because it was made before all of this yeah. and clearly saying this is not anything new. So obviously now everything's heightened, everyone's much more aware and I think with some of the criticism that's thrown at it from saying it's pushing a narrative, uh, no, this is this was before, this has been written about from before, they've been working on it a long time, these have been coming out in different ways, some films that haven't been made by the mainstream that are addressing this, obviously Jordan Peele with his status now, able to get things like this through, so it, it wasn't even zeitgeist or anything like that, it was like, yeah, we're in a position to be able to say these stories on this platform. So I just think everyone's very heightened to it, but it's not, definitely not zeitgeist. It's like, yeah, it was, yeah, um, it was before. It's a story, it's not a story, it's a reflection of society that it's been told from time. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think as a non-horror fan, um, I would recommend people to see it, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, and I would really like to try and find um, the book, uh, to read The Forbidden, because I'd really like to see where it all began, really, as a um, as a story. But I would recommend it, yeah, to people who are non-horror fans. Does this make me want to look at more horror s- films? Not particularly, but unless it's very layered <laughs> by women directors, then then I'll probably be more willing. <laughs> because well, there was a nice little Easter egg in, in there, as they call it. If you noticed that um, in the laundryette when he walks in, the guy is reading the book Candyman is adapted from. Oh, oh right! I picked up on that one. That. See that? So there's little things that. dropped in like that. Like, well, we are going back. Um, I, I thought it was really, I liked what they did with the new one. I, I'm, I'm a bit mixed, but we made it clear about these kind of remake reboots. But I think this one was done kind of right. Um, 
And I think actually what was interesting as a were as I said, Tracy, it's not a sequel, but it kind of references <laughs> a lot, so it's hard to describe it. But mm. it actually really made me look at it's it's rare. It made me look at that first one a different way. Different things were going on, and maybe notice it even more. And I think mm. I would encourage people try to watch the first Candyman first, then go watch the sequel because I think they do even made the years apart. I think it's very cleverly they do complement each other and they do have yes, this crossover and what's going on, yeah. and it really yeah. does elaborate not just the events of the story but the themes and everything you notice going on. And yeah. um, it was a it was an adaptation done really well. Yeah, definitely. I think they both work really well as separate films and also together. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm also, I still wouldn't class myself as a horror fan, but the, I would definitely say that the um, the later film has a lot of psychological thriller elements to it, and it's very deep and layered. It's not just a slasher flick, so I would absolutely recommend it also, even to non-horror fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is the end of the podcast then. Um Thank you so much, Neil and Tracy, uh, for joining me. Yeah, Candyman is Thank still you. in theatres now, isn't it? Is it? Can they still catch it? Well, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's still on like the Peck and Plex. I know that for certain. Great. <laughs> no, thanks very much for the invitation. You're welcome. Thank you, Charlotte. And happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Deptford Cinema Podcast. For more information about our current online activities, please visit our website, www.deptfordcinema.org. Deptford Cinema. Deptford Cinema, the right place for film lovers.